The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We have been in a series this summer, as you know, on sanctification, and our desire is to be talking over these few weeks this summer about the importance of personal holiness, the importance of being godly men, godly women, and making sure that we are making progress in Christ-likeness. We have been looking at the different facets of progressive sanctification. And uh, we are almost at the end of the series today, and then uh, next week will be our last uh, topic in this series. If you were here last week, I preached a message on the sanctifying influence of marriage. And we spent some time looking at the fact that God intends marriage, if you are married, to be one of the primary means by which He sanctifies you, grows you, makes you more like Jesus Christ. God intends your marriage to be a place where the the rough edges are smoothed out, where sin is confronted, where love is expressed and patience is grown and forgiveness is nurtured and kindness is developed. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose for your marriage. There's There's many reasons for your marriage, but in all of it, God wants to make you more like Jesus Christ through your spouse. He wants to expose sin. He wants to uh, make you grow in your character. He wants to show you the areas in your life that still need some work. That, that's why you're married, and we're grateful for that. I ended last week's sermon with a little caveat, and the caveat was this, that this doesn't mean, though, that one spouse should let the other spouse sin against them or oppress them or abuse them without confronting it or getting help. In other words, a spouse who is being abused or oppressed or grossly sinned against by the other spouse, spouse should not just blindly accept that, assuming that they're being sanctified. To put it more simply, the sanctifying influence of marriage is not a license for an abusive marriage. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to bear up under this because, man, the Lord's really making me like Christ. And that is true, that is, that is a reality, but We want to deal this morning with a very serious issue, that of marital abuse. There was a book a number of years ago that came out entitled Sacred Marriage, and it was published with the subtitle, What if God designed marriage to make us us holy more than to make us happy? And the premise of that book was essentially what I preached on last week. It's It's a good book. I would, for the most part, recommend it to you. I have read a good portion of it. It's a helpful resource on how you can become more like Christ in your marriage. But apparently, some spouses, some women in particular, took the book as a mandate for them to to remain under and not confront abuse in their marriage, to not speak up, to, to not deal with that, to not get help in dealing with abuse. And the author didn't intend that for hap- to happen. That wasn't in any way a focus of his book, but some took it that way. Just like that author did not intend that, nor do I want to come across that way in communicating that you need to just live with abuse in your marriage. So I want to deal with this issue this morning. There are some messages I love to preach. I wake up early in the morning on Sunday and I can't wait to get here and preach and then and there are some messages I'd rather just stay in bed. And quite honestly, this is one of those messages. It is not an easy topic. 
It is a very difficult topic. It is a heavy topic. I realize that. But our elders who have been studying this and working through this over the last few weeks and months felt like it was appropriate for us to address this issue publicly. And the reason for that is because if you look at the statistics, this is a national problem. And it's a problem that not only affects our country in its secular society, it is a problem that affects marriages within the church. Many statistics tell us that the statistics of abuse in the church are essentially the same as the statistics of abuse outside the church. Every nine seconds, a woman in the U.S. is assaulted or beaten. One in four women will experience domestic violence in her lifetime, and 25% of marriages are considered abusive. 24% of women and 13% of men report experiencing some sort of physical violence from a spouse. They've either been hit with a fist or something hard, beaten, slammed up against a wall at some point in their lifetime. That's one in four women and one in seven men. 50% of men who frequently assault their wives also frequently abuse their children. One in four women will be sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetimes, and some of those assaults can occur within the context of marriage. These are scary statistics. And if that number is correct, that 25% of marriages are considered abusive, whether in the church or outside the church, then that means that potentially here at Maranatha Bible Church, where 100 marriages are represented, potentially up to 25 are dealing with some sort of abuse, form of abuse in their marriage. We hope that's not the case. We pray that is not the case here. But statistics would say that's the case. And if you add to that the numbers of physical, uh, add to the, the numbers of physical and sexual abuse, you add the numbers of mental and, and spiritual and uh, emotional and verbal abuse, the numbers are even higher. So this is something we need to talk about. And before we do that, let me just first mention that it is critical for us to distinguish between two types of sin within marriage. There is normal sin that takes place in every marriage, and then there is abusive sin that takes place in some marriages. By that I mean that every marriage involves some level of sinfulness. If you are a person who is alive and breathing, you're a sinner. And when you say, I do, you bring that sin into your marriage. And so every single marriage will include moments of rudeness and selfishness and pride and unkind words and false accusations. Every marriage will involve conflict at some point or another. We don't condone that sin. We don't say that that's acceptable just because it's normal. That, that needs to be dealt with. That needs to be confronted. It needs to be sanctified out of that marriage and that person's life. And we looked at that last, last week. But but in a healthy, God-honoring marriage, that's what happens. Sin is acknowledged, it is repented of, it is forgiven, reconciliation takes place. This is the rhythm and these are the patterns that take place in a God-honoring, healthy marriage. Yes, there's sin, but there's repentance and reconciliation and forgiveness granted. It's not abusive sin. But that's not the case in some marriages. In some marriages, it goes beyond normal sinfulness. 
In some marriages, it goes beyond the, the normal pattern and rhythm that, that I just described. In some cases, it's actually damaging and destructive physically, sexually, verbally, emotionally, spiritually, economically. It is a sin that is far beyond the normal sinfulness in a healthy marriage. It's sin that hurts. It's sin that demeans. It's sin that destroys and debases and degrades and humiliates. It is a sin, as one writer says, that is a godless pattern of abusive behavior among spouses involving physical, psychological, or emotional means to exert and obtain power and control over a spouse for the achievement of selfish ends, end quote. And let me say as strongly and as vehemently and as fervently as I can, that has no place in a Christian marriage, period, ever. And it has no place in the church or this church. And we want to help. Unfortunately, though, some women not in this church, I'm just speaking generally, have come to the church in general and have asked for help. And instead of finding help, they've actually found the situation become more serious or the situation is made worse by the church that they've gone to for help. You say, how? Let me give you some examples. Some women have been told that they just need to go back and submit to their husbands. Just go back and submit to him. Just go try harder. Just be a soothing influence in his life. Try to pacify him and mollify him and make yourself more available to him physically so that you don't anger him and upset him and try to win him with your gentle and quiet spirit, which is what the Bible does say. But that's meant in some cases to mean you're just to submit yourself to him, even if it involves not breathing a word of it to anyone. That's not helpful. Some women have been taught that their primary goal in life is to protect their husband's reputation and to make his standing in church good and to not do anything to tarnish his name or reputation, to do what Proverbs 31 says, that his name is to be praised in the gates. And, and of course, that's the case, but in this type of marriage, that, that's not the point. We're not trying to get women to make their husband's reputation great without saying something. Some women have actually been church disciplined and excommunicated for excommunicated from their churches for speaking up about this issue, and some churches have simply turned a blind eye to this issue. One writer says this, countless women, women who have been loved and made righteous and forgiven and welcomed by Christ are trapped in hate-filled marriages where their souls are systematically bludgeoned with Satan's lies about their worthlessness and where their bodies are systematically battered by the hands and arms of someone who has promised to love them and protect them. This is a great evil, and their husband, the Lord of heaven and earth, is storing up deep wrath for those who would treat his bride in this way and for a church who would turn her back on these, the weakest among us, end quote. We do not want to be that church. And so as our elders have been wrestling through this for a number of months, we have not discovered all the nuances. We have not dealt with all the nuances. We have not addressed every single nook and cranny of this issue. It is a massive, huge behemoth of an issue. There are things that we still have to explore and land on, but at the same time, we feel like we have discussed this enough where, where we want to open this very difficult can of worms and publicly address it. We want to draw a line in the sand 
a strong, bold, clear line in the sand as it relates to abusive marriages and say, no, not here. We will not sweep this issue under the rug. We want our church to be a place that protects the oppressed, that protects women. Women, if you are in a situation like this, you, like this, you need to know that we will protect you. You will not be blamed or shamed or ostracized. You will be protected. We want to help. And if you are here and you're on the other side of this, we want to call you to repentance. We want to call you to repent of this kind of treatment of another person, not just for the sake of your marriage, but for the sake of your own soul. And so we want to briefly address this issue this morning. Just footnotes as I begin here. I have already to this point obviously played my cards in terms of where I think most of this takes place. This typically takes place in the case of a husband abusing a wife, but that's not always the case. There are some wives who are the abusers. There are some women who are capable of serious abuse. There are some women who are the verbal and emotional and physical abusers in the marriage. There are some wives who erupt in pressure, under pressure and in anger and threaten to leave and threaten suicide and respond in violent outbursts. There are some cases in some marriages where it is the wife who is the abuser. And in some cases, it's both the husband and the wife as they jockey for position and compete with one another and demean one another and accuse one another. I am fully aware of the fact that this works both ways. I'm aware of the fact that this can be a woman, a wife to her husband, and then it can be husband and wife together. But if you look at the statistics, the abuser is often the husband, not the wife. Abuse is typically perpetrated by by men. Men, you're stronger than women. You and I are prone more typically to anger. We are prone to exercising control and power in the marriage. We're prone to being more physically physically violent than women are. And so this morning, I want to preach with that in mind, not to dismiss the fact that there could be other examples of this, but to address the case of a husband abusing his wife. I also want to acknowledge that there are other types of abuse. There is child abuse, and there is abuse in the workplace, and we're fully aware that those other types of abuse exist, but this morning I want to focus primarily on marital abuse in this message. This message this morning is not really a go-to-one-text-and-address-it kind of message. That's what we typically do. This morning is a topical message, and I, I want to address this topic, and we're going to look at a number of different passages this morning And to do that, I want to give you three questions and three answers to those three questions. I am not going to answer every question you have this morning. This may actually raise more questions than I can answer this morning. But I want to give you three of the main questions and answers to those questions to help us deal with this issue. First, number one, question number one, what is marital abuse? What is this? We need to begin by defining some terms, and we need to do that because the terms abuse or domestic violence or whatever term you want to use, domestic abuse, these can be tricky terms. They can be loaded terms. They can be terms that have a different connotation and a different meaning to different kinds of people, and so it's important for us to clarify our terminology. Webster, in his dictionary, defines abuse this way as an improper and harmful treatment 
of another by one person misusing his or her natural powers, privileges, and advantages. That's a secular understanding of abuse. It's helpful. But we must begin by clarifying our terms with biblical terms. It's essential that we, we address this issue by looking at this from a biblical perspective. And we, granted, know that the Bible doesn't use terms like abuse and domestic violence and domestic abuse, but it does use other terms, terms like afflicted, violence, oppression. These terms are used. And so I want to briefly address it from the basis of those terms. One of the first places the Bible refers to oppression is in Exodus chapter 3, where the Israelites had been under the ruthless and cruel domination of Pharaoh. They'd been put there uh, by the Lord in His sovereignty. They grew to be a great nation, and a Pharaoh arose who began to inflict great cruelty and oppression upon him, uh, them. And the people cried out, and Exodus 3 verse 9 says, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So here's one of the first acknowledges in the Bible of, of a people oppressing another people and what God did. God heard and He sees His people when they're wrong and He sought to deliver them from their oppression. Jo- Joseph is an example of this. A man who was physically, emotionally abused by his brothers, thrown into a well, dropped down on the bottom, uh, thought they would, he would starve to death, and yet God heard him in his oppression and delivered him. Genesis chapter 16, there's an account of Sarah and Hagar. You're familiar with that account where Sarah was unable to bear a child. She was unable to get pregnant, and so she had the bright idea of seeing if her husband Abraham could have a child with Hagar, her servant. And so that happened. She became pregnant. Sarah was angry and upset about that. So Sarah mistreated or oppressed Hagar so that she fled into the wilderness and and God heard her oppression and God cared for the oppressed Hagar and ministered to her by meeting her there. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Nabal and Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25 where Abigail is married to a man named Nabal who described in 1 Samuel 25 verse 3 as a man who was harsh and evil in his dealings. We don't know this for certain, but likely, it's very likely that Abigail was most certainly married to an abusive husband. He's described throughout this chapter as harsh, abusive, he scorned people. In fact, his name Nabal means fool or foolish. You remember the story? David comes to him and says, can you give us some provisions? We're we're in need of some provisions. I've cared for your flocks. And he says, no, forget it. uh, David decides he's going to go kill Nabal. Abigail, his wife, hears about this. She intercedes, gives David the provisions so that he doesn't kill Nabal. And then God inflicts Nabal with a heart attack, and he dies 10 days later, and God delivers Abigail from her oppression. We begin to see that God cares for those who are afflicted. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 9, and it's providential that Gay put on the screen this morning for her song the very verses I'm about to read to you. Psalm 9 talks about God's heart for the oppressed. Psalm 9, verse 9. 
Psalm 9, verse 9 says, The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. God cares for the oppressed. He's a, he's a help and a strength for those who are oppressed. Look at verse 12. It says, For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Turn over to chapter 10, verse 17. Psalm 10. Verse 17 says, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. God vindicates the oppressed. Go over to chapter 12, Psalm 12, and look at verse 5. Psalm 12 and verse 5 says, Because of the devastation of the afflicted, Because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, and I will set him in the safety for which he longs. God cares about those who are needy, who are oppressed, who are afflicted. Psalm 74, verse 21 says, Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Psalm 146, verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed? God. God cares. God hears. He shows his care for the the, the oppressed because this is his heart. He does not stand for this. Psalm 11, Verse 5, you're in chapter 12 right now. Look back in Psalm 11, verse 5. It says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. God is opposed to this. And the reason, listen very carefully, this is obvious, but let me state it very clearly. The reason God hates affliction and oppression is because it is sin. It is sin against another person. Jesus made this very clear in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to turn over there. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 21. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, stated very clearly the danger of this. Matthew 5, verse 21, 22. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable in the courts. So Jesus knows that there's people who are thinking, well, listen, I'm not killing anybody. I've not murdered anybody, so I must be good. God must be happy with me because I've not committed murder. And Jesus in verse 22 says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It's not enough just to say, I haven't murdered someone. Your words can murder somebody. This type of oppression is evil and sinful. And we need to think about this in the context of marriage. God God is concerned about this in the context of your marriage. He's concerned about this in in how it plays out in marriages. We've spoken generally about this, but in particular, God is concerned about how this bears itself out in a marriage. And specifically, He's concerned when one spouse induces fear, terrorizes, humiliates, isolates, threatens, demands obedience, or physically harms another person. So I've given you some biblical definitions of this. I've given you some places in Scripture which talk about 
this kind of oppression and what God thinks of it. Let me give you some specific categories now as it relates to marriage, perhaps outside of marriage as well, but let me just give you, these are some terms that I think will help kind of flesh this out. And let me give you some expressions of each of these types of abuse. There is mental abuse, there is emotional abuse, there is physical abuse, and there is sexual abuse. Let me give you some expressions of each one of those. Mental abuse. In less severe cases of mental abuse, it involves regular harsh criticism, constant questioning and challenging the thoughts and perspectives of the other, cold shoulders, silent treatment, frequent sarcasm, habitual dishonesty to avoid accountability, using Scripture to correct and control the spouse to selfish ends. That's a less extreme form of this. And then there's the more extreme form of this, which involves insult and biting sarcasm and threats to harm yourself and playing mind games and false accusations and mocking and screaming and using tone to instill fear and separating you from your friends or your family and withholding help like money and medical care. And then there are some most severe expressions of this, threats of physical harm, vicious demeaning words, constant assaults upon character, verbal harassment, relentless attacks upon the other person's view of reality, and gross distortions of Scripture to torment, mock, and subdue the other person. That's mental abuse. And then there's emotional abuse. There are less uh, severe forms of that, low-grade anger, blaming the other person for frustration and irritability, constant criticism, subtle attempts at humiliation. And then there's more severe forms of emotional abuse where there's explosiveness emotionally, insults, biting sarcasm, trying to induce guilt and shame in order to manipulate, taking advantage of emotional frailty and weakness, attempts to instill fear in order to control the other person. And then the most severe forms of emotional abuse, threats of physical harm, severe and repetitive verbal harassment and intimidation attempts to instill terror for the fun of it, and aggressive mocking and ridicule. There is then physical abuse. Less severe forms of this, a threatening posture, hostile facial expressions, clenched fists, slamming doors, getting in the face of another person, poking, flicking, self-harm to punish and manipulate, refusal to offer simple physical assistance. This would be a, a less extreme form of this. Then more severe would be grabbing, pushing, shoving, stalking, punching walls, throwing objects, spitting, destroying the other person's items of value, slapping, or physically isolating the person from friends and family. Most severe forms of this would be punching, biting, stabbing, forced confinement, hitting with objects, and physical injury to the other person's loved ones. There's a whole category of sexual abuse, which I am not going to read because none of us need to hear what that looks like, but you know what I'm talking about. A common thread in all of this is power and control. The common thread through all of this is is that oppression is, is not just one incident. It is the systematic punishment to maintain control in a relationship. That's what undergirds most of this abuse taking place between a husband and a wife. It's the use of words and threats and intimidation to dominate and control and belittle another person. And at the core of all this, listen very carefully, is selfishness. Let's just call it what the Bible calls it. It is selfishness. It is pride. 
It is someone who chooses not to love as God has called that person to love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, I give you a commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is what God calls us to. This is what marks out Christians, love. We love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Abusers don't do that. Their conduct is rooted in selfishness and control and domination. James 4, verse 2 describes that. It says, uh, James 4, verses 1 and 2, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Listen, people abuse other people because they don't get what they want. People take advantage of others and oppress others because they want something so badly and they don't get it and so they're willing to take extreme measures to force it. That's why I said last week marriage problems are not, in oftentimes the case, marriage problems. They're character problems. Deep-seated pride and selfishness that wants to dominate and control another person. Studying this the last few weeks, I have learned that this type of conduct goes in cycles. And here's the abuse cycle. There's a a phase where this tension kind of builds. There's the victim or the spouse who's under this is getting fearful, walking around on eggshells, trying to just keep things peaceful. Then something happens and he blows up and he uh, snaps and there's this verbal, emotional, physical abuse and anger and an incident occurs and there's actual uh, event of abuse that takes place in that marriage And then the next phase is he apologizes and attempts to make it up and promises it will never happen again and gives gifts and tries to minimize it and say it wasn't that bad. And then after that, there's this calm phase that lasts for a while where everything's okay. And then the cycle starts all over again. And you need to understand that there are some spouses who live day after day week after week, month after month, in that cycle. Question number two. Why must marital abuse be confronted? We've tried to define it and we've tried to address it. We've tried to give some basic definitions of it. Why must it be confronted? I sat down this week. And having been reading about this and talking about this with our elders for a while and my wife, I I just took about 10 minutes this week and I sat down and I started to list reasons why this has to be confronted. And I got to eight and I stopped because I realized you can keep going with this. So here's the eight very quickly, all right? You can write them down if you want. You don't have to because I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. But here they are, the eight reasons I came up with why this must be confronted. First, letter A, it breaks the law in physical form. It breaks the law. Let me just say it as clearly as I can. There's a law against this. This is criminal conduct in the physical form. If you lay your hand on another person, uh, your spouse, and you physically harm them, you are breaking the law, and it is a criminal act. The state of Michigan has laws against this, laws against domestic abuse and domestic violence. God has established government to protect the innocent. 
Romans 13 verse 4 says it is a minister. Government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It, government, is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God has given government. Government has put laws in place to protect you. So if there's physical violence taking place in the marriage, it is criminal. Number two, letter B. Why else must this be confronted? It hurts someone made in God's image. It hurts someone made in God's image. The person being attacked, the person being sinned against, the person being oppressed, the, 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 the party in this, one, in this situation who is afflicted by their spouse, that individual is made in the image of God. They bear the imprimatur of the Imago Dei. God has stamped who He is on you as an individual, regardless of your age or your sex or who you are or wherever place you find yourself in. Human beings mark the image of God. Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. You get that? Let us, the Trinity, make man and woman in our image according to our likeness. We're going to create humans who bear our resemblance. So when you deface another human being, God's image bearer, you are attacking God himself and his imprint upon another person. Number three, letter C. It violates the one flesh relationship. It violates the one flesh relationship. I'm I'm convinced if if men would stop and think about Genesis 2.24, think about this. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They leave, they cleave, they weave. Brought together into one entity. When God sees you as a married couple, He sees you as one entity. Two separate individuals in one marital union. If you are married, you are one flesh and God sees you that way. So to abuse your wife is to do harm to yourself and the sacredness of that marital union. How? How can you do that to someone who's part of you? Letter D. It disobeys the command for the husband to cherish his wife. It disobeys the command for the husband to cherish his wife. We looked at this last week, Ephesians 5. You know the verses well, 28 and 29. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. There's a nourishing element to your relationship, husbands and wives. You ought to cherish your wife. You ought to treasure her. You ought to nourish her. You ought to feed her. You ought to do whatever you can to see her flourish spiritually. That's why Colossians 3 verse 19 says, Husbands, do not be embittered against your wife. Don't you dare be embittered against her. She is God's gift to you as someone you get to nourish and cherish. Turn to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 7.
Peter says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. You have to understand her. It's a command. It's a command to understand and know your wife as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Gentlemen, your wife is this fragile, beautiful treasure that has to be protected. She's weaker. She's weaker physically. She's weaker emotionally. She's weaker spiritually in some cases. Your job as a husband is to protect that. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That doesn't just mean she's a fellow human, and it doesn't mean she's just a fellow partaker in salvation. He calls marriage the grace of life. It's God's grace to you to be married to the person you're married to. It's God's kindness. He has given you your spouse for your good for His glory. She's God's gift to you of the closest of all earthly relationships. That's why abuse is so heinous. She's a fellow heir in marriage. Letter E. Why must this be confronted? Because it distorts a complementarian view of marriage. It distorts a complementarian view of marriage. You are probably aware of the fact that there are two views on marital roles in the evangelical community. There is egalitarianism, which is the belief that there are no roles, there's no distinctions in roles, that essentially every person in the marital relationship is completely equal in terms of roles. Now, we believe that they are in value, but egalitarianism says that everyone is equal. Husband and wife are completely equal in their roles, That's not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches complementarianism. That God has given different roles to husband and wife. God has called you wives to be a helper to your husband, and He has called you husbands to lovingly lead your wife as the spiritual leader of your family, and that leadership is meant to look like servant leadership. It's loving, it's gentle, it's kind, it's a willingness to die to yourself. It's a self-sacrificing kind of leadership that is patterned after Christ's love for the church who gave himself up for the church. That's the model, that's the selfless, sacrificial leadership that needs to characterize husbands in their relationship to their wife. And wives will come up under that in their role as a helper. That's the biblical road. That's what it looks like. That's biblical complementarianism. But gentlemen, we need to understand that there's a ditch on either side of our role that we have to avoid. Two ditches, two extremes that are deadly, both of them in their own different ways. On the one ditch, on the one extreme is passivity. And that ditch is husbands who don't lead and husbands who abandon their leadership and and husbands who check out and just punt their leadership to to the to the wife. Some have called it male PMS, passive male syndrome. That ditch must be avoided, but the opposite ditch must also be avoided. The opposite ditch is hyperheadship, harsh, domineering, 
overarching, powerful, controlling kind of leadership where the husband views himself as the authoritarian dictator of that family. He demands respect. He demands submission. He micromanages. He dictates so much that his wife doesn't feel like a spiritual equal. She feels squelched and subjugated and walks around in eggshells. It's a harsh, dominating, demanding kind of leadership. And I am convinced that marital abuse thrives in that kind of environment. This is the curse. Genesis 3:16. God said to the woman in cursing her, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I think inherent in the curse is a competing desire for control in the marriage. And husbands, as the stronger ones, will abuse that, some demanding submission from their wife, demanding obedience from their wife. Listen, no husband should ever demand obedience from his wife, ever, period. Husbands, if you have to demand your wife submit to you, something is wrong. Because any woman who is cherished and loved and nurtured and protected and loved like Christ in most cases will have no problem coming up under that. And if you're at a point where you have to demand her submission to you, you've got to take a hard look at yourself. Letter F. Marital abuse must be confronted because it dismisses the biblical instruction about the tongue. Marital abuse must be confronted because it dismisses the biblical instruction about the tongue, meaning the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue and its power. Psalm 52 verse 2 says, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor. It cuts Psalm 12, verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. Your words can hurt and destroy and damage and kill. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. James 3 verse 9, just a few verses later, says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Do you realize the power of your tongue? Do you realize how those words cut and kill words of death? We all grow up on the playground saying sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt us. That's baloney. Words hurt. And some of the deepest wounds that a wife will ever experience are not the physical ones, but the ones that have been afflicted by her husband's tongue. Letter G. Why else must we confront this? It disregards the one another's. It disregards the one another's. 
There are some 60 one another's listed in the New Testament. Just listen to a few of these. We as believers are commanded to love one another, to serve one another, to strengthen one another, to help one another, to encourage one another, to be devoted to one another, to confess your sins to one another, to be humble toward one another, to give preference to one another, to be kind to one another, to be compassionate toward one another, to live in peace with one another. You don't check those at the door when you walk in your house. In fact, the place where you should be practicing the one another's most is in your house. Letter H. Last one, it demonstrates behavior similar to unbelievers. This needs to be confronted because if a man says, I'm a Christian, and yet does this to his wife, he demonstrates behavior that is similar to unbelievers. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Just turn there. You're, you're close. Just turn back a few pages to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And, and I want you just to listen to this. Paul is confronting false teachers, but look at the qualities that he lists in this rebuke. Verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. He's speaking about false teachers. But a man who conducts himself like that in the context of marriage bears qualities similar to unbelievers. Men who treat their wives this way are revealing that there is something seriously wrong with them spiritually. That's why it needs to be confronted. There's eight, we could come up with eight or 16 or 24 more. But this has to be addressed in the church. We have to confront this. We have to expose this because this is not honoring to God. So what is marital abuse? We talked about that. Why must marital abuse be confronted? Here's the third one. What is a proper response to marital abuse? How do we respond to this? What what should we do as fellow believers and as a church to address this issue? And as I said, we as elders, we want to take this very seriously. We want to uphold the beauty of the church and the purity of the church and the sanctity of marriage. And so we want to draw a line in the sand and as best we can, root out all forms of abuse, if there are any, here in this church. We stand ready to protect the abused. We stand ready to call abusers to repentance. We stand ready to do anything we can to help marriages be restored as God intended them. Our desire is to see God do a work. So let me address, first of all, the abuser. If you are in this boat or you know someone who is in this boat, let me address first how we should respond to the abuser. The first thing we need to do is help the abuser realize that they are caught in a serious, sinful pattern. It is sin. 
and this individual is caught in it. They're ensnared in it. They're trapped in this sin. Galatians 6.1 commands us as believers what we're to do with that individual. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to himself so that you too will not be tempted. He says, if you see someone, a believer, a fellow believer, who's caught, trapped, ensnared, you lovingly and graciously pursue them to restore them for the sake of their souls. This is not just a marriage problem. This is a spiritual, a deeply spiritual problem. And continual unrepentant patterns of sin are deadly to anybody. This needs to be brought out. Nobody likes their sin exposed. None of us, none of us wants it exposed. All of us want to hide our sin, to minimize it, to suppress it, to keep it behind closed doors and hidden and kept in the dark. None of us want that. But for the sake of a person's spiritual well-being, it has to be dragged into the light. It needs to be confronted because he cannot move forward as a believer any longer as long as that sin remains hidden and kept secret. The second thing that we would want to do with a person who's in this situation is to help them come to conviction over their sin. Not to see it, but to come to conviction. To come to a point where they realize this is an offense against not only their spouse and their family, but God. This is an offense against a holy God, and it needs to be confessed. It needs to be repented of. It cannot be excused anymore. It can't be minimized. He can't deny it. He must own this sin and repent of it. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Stop concealing it. Stop hiding it. Come to the point that David came to in Psalm 51, verse 4, when he said, against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 describes the kind of sorrow that should accompany this kind of repentance. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Listen, beloved, it must be confronted, and that person must come to a point of repentance without regret. A godly sorrow, a deep, broken contrition where they humbly and genuinely repent of this sin that has permeated their marriage. So they must be identified as being caught in a sinful pattern. They must secondly be brought to conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we would want to help this person change. As much as we can, as much as we are able, with the power of the Spirit and the resources God has given us, if this person is a believer, this man is a believer, we want to hold him accountable to changing because you're a new creation in Christ. You're not who you are anymore. You're, you're changed. You're transformed. You have the Spirit of God. You've got the Word of God. You've got the church and all the resources available in the bride of Christ to help you become the man and the husband that God is calling you to be. I want to teach how to deal with anger, how to speak kindly, how to lead like a servant, how to love and cherish your wife, to get accountability. If you're here and you are in that boat, then please let us lovingly help. What if you're the abused? How do we 
address this. First of all, let me first say that we will listen to you. We will listen. We're not going to write you off. We will take all claims of abuse seriously. We will do what we can to protect you. If you need to get in a safe place, there are people here who have already identified themselves as a place that we could send people to to keep you safe. Secondly, we'll try to help you understand what has happened to you. Many abusers manipulate their victims into thinking that they deserved what they got, so they have this false sense of guilt. Listen, that is never the case. Abuse is never your fault if you're the wife who's on the receiving end of this. Some who have been abused wonder if God caused the abuse to happen because he was angry with them and they have a hard time seeing God as good and faithful, kind. He is. Despite your situation, despite your circumstances, despite what you've been through, God is still who he says he is. Third, we want to help you become an overcomer by God's grace. To offer you hope, comfort, to help you trust God again, to help you not live in fear again, to help you see that even in the midst of all of this, God was good and sovereign and can use all of this for your good and His glory to give you godly counsel and support. If you are in that situation, let us help. It's a hard message. Very heavy message. I get that. But we love you. We love your marriage. We love Christ. And our elders want to open ourselves up and do what we can to see if we can rid anyone of this satanic distortion of marriage. I'm sure there's many, many questions that you have. Uh, we're going to take some time in our sermon discussion time to address those. So if you'd like to talk more about this, my wife and I are actually going to do this together. There will be elders in there, and uh, we'd love to talk a little more freely if you want to explore some of these things. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is, this is heavy. And uh, this has been a very difficult message to preach. But for the sake of your kingdom and the purity of your church and for the health and safety and spiritual well-being of anyone who's trapped in this, Lord, we plead with you to work. And we plead with you to supernaturally expose any of this so that Christ can be exalted as the head in all marriages. Lord, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that in Christ these things can be forgiven and they can be remedied and fixed. Marriages can be reconciled. And we pray earnestly for that to take place. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.